Thank you for listening to Sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Reshaped. Reshaped is a 13-week series walking through the book of Ephesians. Continuing to make our way through this wonderful book. We've got a couple weeks left here uh, moving into the summer. And uh, this week Paul continues to lay out for us um, some of the um, imperatives. We talked about a couple weeks ago the second half of Ephesians being filled with the commands. uh, And the first half of Ephesians being filled with the story of the gospel and how important it is to get in sight and to align our hearts with the, the fullness of the story of what God has done for us in Christ um, before it is that we come under the commands of Scripture and how all throughout um, Old Testament and New Testament we always see God um, showing us who He is and what He's done for us um, and that leads into what He calls us to do then. Uh, and if we misplace those, if we put one before the other, we, we misplace so much of um, our motivation and our reasoning for everything that we do and all of the obedience that we pursue. Uh, and so it's important, again, to see this week that um, Paul does have another therefore in here this week. Um, he continues to build on this greater story of the gospel and how its implications bear out in our hearts and in our lives. And so we'll dig into that more today as we see Paul uh, give us even more commands um, and how it is that we are appointed to live as children of light. Um, Just a heads up uh, for you parents, there's a little bit of PG-13-ish type stuff in today, uh, or if you're listening online, nothing crazy, um, but we talk about sexual immorality, it's obviously a little bit... uh, little bit-ish of adult content, but we're not like going crazy or anything. So I uh, just want to give you guys that heads up and just know that if that needs to be a piece of conversation that, that you have that. Uh, and if we can help you in any way with that, please let us know. Um, so Paul here um, picks up on uh, a little bit of where he left off. So we finished last week by saying that we are motivated toward a new way of living based on what we've seen Jesus do uh, toward us, based on the life that we've seen Jesus live toward us. And so we live out of obedience, or we live out obedience uh, to the commands of Scripture, not in order to earn something from God, but rather in response to what God has done for us. The fact that Jesus has earned for us what we could never earn for ourselves leads us to living out the good commands of Scripture uh, in in a way of liberty, not in a way of bondage. And so as we've seen Jesus love us, we seek to love others. As we've seen Jesus forgive us, we seek to forgive others. As we've heard Jesus say of us, we seek then to say those things of others. And as we watch Jesus and how he pursued reconciliation with the world, we seek and pursue reconciliation with others. So all of these outward activities toward others are motivated by what we've seen Jesus do to us. 
and to the world through his life. And so Paul continues into that thought with our passage today, and he begins with a pretty high, a pretty high bar. So let's read verses 1 and 2 again, uh, and then we'll pray and get in. But here's where Paul begins the conversation here today with what it means to, uh, to live in response to God. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let's pray and we'll dig into this high bar that Paul sets for us. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for your people. Um, Thank you, God, for uh, the truth of your gospel that liberates us from religious performance, but rather pushes us beautifully into uh, imitation of God and of Christ, that we might be image bearers that we were created to be. Uh, that you can redeem us and rescue us from the fallen world and that uh, out of darkness you are shining uh, a great light into our hearts that we might live in a new way. That we might be people who honor God and glorify Jesus with our bodies, and with our minds, and with our, our deeds. Um, God, I pray that you would help again today to clarify just the, the importance of understanding uh, the great work that God's done for us in Christ Uh, that we know how rooted we are in that as we seek to respond in obedience to your word, God, because we are frail. uh, We are failures in so many of these different ways. uh, And so the gospel says something significant for us in that Christ died for sinners of whom I am the worst. Um, That is a truth to be treasured today. And I pray that it would uh, embed into our hearts and be something so refreshing to our minds. We need it. We need refreshing. God, this world and the lies that we swim around in every week, they wear us down. So might we see and relish in your truth today uh, and be washed pure through your word. We thank you uh, that we can trust you to do all these things. And we ask you to do them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul lays out for us the highest of all high bars, right? Last week we talked a little bit about how we're prone to kind of construct uh, an image of a perfect kind of world and how uh, we we, we pursue sometimes a a particular pathway because that pathway uh, either has been presented to us by uh, by a cultural presentation or maybe a political presentation or or even a familial familial presentation that says this is how you live right. Uh, But we find very quickly when we pursue kind of a live right of our own construct that we are not even doing that right. Uh, That we never even fulfill the own rightness that we think we should fulfill, that we think others should fulfill. And that religious pressure then puts us under this bondage of we can never fulfill the, the utmost perfection of what we should live into. And Paul puts the bar even higher saying we should actually not just imitate the good people around us, not just imitate maybe our parents or maybe the people we look up to or just our chief ideal of what a good person looks like. We should actually imitate God, one who has no equal, uh, one who has no sin, and one who has no impurity. And so the bar could not be higher, and Paul lays it straight out and says that we imitate God. But what he says is, as beloved children, it's a beautiful little caveat there, why would we imitate God? We would imitate God because he's our dad. We would imitate God, why? Because we're made in his image. We bear his likeness and we reflect his glory. And so the very uh, true reality of being a human being's being means that inherently we possess the ability to point towards the goodness of God. 
and to show others how good our God is through the lives that we live. But we know that we fall woefully short of this reality. So one of the bars is imitate God because we've been created in his image. We've been made to reflect or represent him to his creation. This is a unique, uh, a unique um, opportunity that humans alone have on God's created planet. We alone have been set apart by God as his creations that actually bear his image. We see this in Genesis when God says, let us make mankind in our image. He had created all of the world, all of uh, the vegetation, all of the grand mountains and the flowing rivers and the vast seas and the, the, the plethora of animals and all of creation. And then in man, he says, they will bear my image. And so we, by creation, have a calling in us to reflect God with our lives. And even more so, we are to reflect God in the way of Jesus. The second thing he says is to walk in love as Christ loved us. So how do we know what imitating God looks like perfectly? We look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what it means for a human to reflect God wonderfully, to reflect God perfectly, to reflect God without sin. And the love that Jesus gave was a, is a love that is higher than any love that this world has ever seen. It's a love that Jesus said of himself, no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. So we see Christ's love is not a self-seeking love. It is not a, a, a self-motivated love, but it is an others-centered love love. And not only did Jesus lay his life down for his friends, but he even laid his life down for his enemies. And we see that in scripture very clearly that loving another means to give yourself for their ultimate good. So to imitate God then means also to imitate Jesus by walking in love. And sometimes we get this idea of love kind of convoluted in our heads because we think that love just means carte blanche acceptance of anything that anyone would ever do. But when we see the way that God loved us, we realize that love points us to an ultimate good that we are often not pursuing on our own. Right? We think we're pursuing good, but in the end, often because of the brokenness of sin, we're pursuing a selfish pursuit that would actually derail us from ultimate good. And Christ comes in with his love and pursues us and rescues us and redeems us to set us on a course that is for our actual good. To pursue us with truth and love. Often we don't put those two things together, the truth and the love part. Tim Keller says this, that love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that can, we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. And so as a call to imitate God and to reflect Jesus in the love that we're show, showing towards others, it's a love that sometimes brings truth to bear in a way that can lead people towards greater life, right? And that's why Paul turns a corner here in verse 3 and names things in this world that are not life-giving. And he says that these are things that do not belong into the lives of saints, into the lives of those who've been redeemed and rescued by God, right? In love, Paul is willing to go there, right? In love, he's willing to name things. He's willing to be specific. 
He's willing to get down to the nitty-gritty. Why? Because the things that we pursue for ourselves, for our own selfish gain, are the things that derail and ruin our lives. And if we're really going to be loved by God, then we're going to be told the truth about these things that are going to ruin us, the sin that is ruining us. And in love, we're not just going to be told, that's bad, that's wrong, don't be stupid. But we're going to be pursued by a love that was willing to lay down its life for his enemies. And so Paul here in verses 3 through 6 lays out some, some very blatant and strong um, sinful tendencies that we see in the world that we live in. So starting in verse 3, he says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so Paul, in the first verse, verse 3, he kind of lays out these three different sin tendencies, these three different sinful temptations that we see. One is sexual immorality. Another is all impurity. And then the third is covetousness. So I'm going to take these one at a time and just look at the reality of what these things really are and that Paul is saying that these things must not even have a hint among us. So sexual immorality, Paul uses the word porneia here, which is a kind of a catch-all term that means all of the kinds of sexual immorality. Uh, that's, that's the term that Paul uses here. It's also used elsewhere um, in his writing and in other places of the New Testament. Sexual immorality, when you boil it down, is, is basically this, the misuse of another's body, one that doesn't belong to me, for my own self-centered pursuit of pleasure. Okay? Sexual immorality is the misuse of another's body, one that doesn't belong to me, for my own self-centered pursuits of pleasure. And so sexual immorality or pernea is all perversions, any perversion, every perversion, of the good gift of sexuality that God has given to us. Right, So what scripture tells us clearly, repeatedly, and from cover to cover is that sexuality is a part of being a human being. Right, That it's not the whole, it's not the central, it's not even the most important part of us, but it is a significant and an intentional and beautiful part of us that God has made and given. And God created us in his image, and when he created us, he created us both male and female. And it says in scripture that the woman was made for the man, right? And we see in all of the teaching on sexuality that the man is to belong to and to give his body to his wife and to give it to her alone. And then the woman is to belong to and to give her body to her husband alone. And in this way, both the woman and the man are actually giving themselves to the Lord, who's the one who owns our body to begin with, because he is the one who created us. 
And so outside of the beautiful arrangement of a marriage relationship, which God has made sex for, the power of sexuality becomes a power for brokenness. The potency of this gift that God has given us gets turned against us. Because there's such a beauty and such a a significance in the power of what God has given us. Because sex is to be bond building between a husband and a wife. That it is an intimacy creating a love expressing a self-giving communication for the good of another. That's why God gave that to us, is for another. But when we break it, through sin and through all sorts of perversion, we turn it into an objectifying and degrading and confusing self-centered obsession. We had a series, I think last year, maybe even the year before on sexuality, there was three uh, messages in that series, and uh, we talked about the good gift of sex, and we talk about the the brokenness of sin and what that introduced into our sexuality, and then we talked about God's redemption of it. And so this is what Scripture has told us that sex is for, that where it should be, and how it is for our ultimate good. And like a fire, this is an illustration probably used again and again, like a fire uh, needs to be contained in the right place. So if you put a fire in the middle of your living room, your house will burn down, but in the fireplace, it's great. Or outside, as a gigantic bonfire, it's even better, right? Like if it's in the right context and it's able to burn in the right place, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But when you put it in the wrong context, it destroys and turn, tears down. And one thing that we have to pay attention to when we talk about sexuality is that sometimes Bible teachers have been really, really heavy-handed and self-righteous with the way they've talked about sex. And so if you've ever heard these things, these teachings from Scripture about sexuality come out of the mouth of an angry, red-faced, self-righteous preacher... I apologize on behalf of Jesus for that reality because any man who's ever stood before anyone and opened the word to communicate about the brokenness of sex and has not confessed or owned the fact that he too is broken is is a liar. (laughs) He's just a hypocrite. Um, And so know that this is the tender love of a gracious God um, bringing to us uh, his word because he wants life for us. When we struggle with temptation towards sexual immorality in any way, we are being tempted particularly towards something that will break down our wholeness, both before God and before our spouse. We are prone to pull these temptations into ourselves and to make them part of our identity. Right? We see this in our world, that the, the potency of sexuality is so misappropriated that it, it becomes for us an actual identity. It becomes for us the only thing that we, uh, that we name ourselves by. And ultimately, the world wants to tell you that this temptation towards broken sexuality is a, it's a good thing that you should pursue freely. It's, I mean, that's... That's the message. It doesn't matter. Just do as ever, as ever you want. 
right? That's the, the call of the world. Um, and, and it says to embrace these temptations rather than to resist them. Um, and in that, when we do, when we succumb to that reality, we are led towards bondage and not towards freedom. And so and Paul points this out in this passage that these are works of darkness and that we ought to come into the light, meaning we ought to come into the truth of what God has revealed to us. And we need to pay attention to in the way that we talk about and walk through and, and deal with all of the world in regards to sexual temptation, right? So if you are someone who hasn't struggled in a particular manifestation of this struggle, but you've treated someone with disgust or disrespect because they are tempted in ways you are not, you ought to go apologize for that. You ought to go repent for that. You've stood in self-righteousness, okay? Me, I've stood in self-righteousness and have thought terrible things about people who are tempted in particular ways when it comes to sex. And I've thought they're worse than me, they're less deserving of God's love than me. They're certainly further away from forgiveness than I am. Right? They're definitely more removed from the goodness of God than I am. And it's untrue. Their temptation and my temptation are towards brokenness. And I ought not delineate that theirs is worse than mine. And if I've done it, if I've done it with my words, if I've done it with my actions, if I've done it... In, in the way I've, I've conducted myself around them, I, I ought to engage them with an apology. I ought to say to them, I, I sincerely repent for treating you like you're a worse human being than I am. Because in the eyes of Jesus, we are all needing vast amounts of forgiveness. And we are all in a place of not being, being able to earn that forgiveness by ourselves. And so we, we need to look at the world around us in that way, right? To understand there, but for the grace of God, go I. That if I were left to my own devices, I know how far down I would fall. And that leads us towards what? Not towards judgment, but towards mercy, right? That leads us toward compassion, not pushing people away. That leads us to a place where we might be part of how God would bring healing and restoration to others. And so this sin Paul lists very clearly. It's elsewhere in scripture as well. And it's one that the world lies to us about. But it's one that we are called to lead or to walk into the light with. Paul also names impurity. We can call this uncleanness. And this is all kinds of impurity. He says all impurity. And impurity is simply the misuse of the mind or of the tongue for selfish enjoyment or wasteful amusement. Right? Impurity is lustful or wasteful or foul. And it ought not be in the life of a saint. Right? Why? Well, the reason is because the mind and the tongue were made for God. And yet we take the mind and the tongue... And we use them for self. God desires, like him, in, in, as we've been created in his image, that our minds and our tongues be expressly used for the life-giving gift of building others up. 
that we would use our mental faculties toward that end, to bring benefit to other human beings, that we would use our tongues to build others up, to encourage them and to teach them and point them to the truth of Jesus. But in our perversions, we ruin these things, right? We ruin our minds, we ruin our tongues, we use them to objectify others, we use them to tear others down so that we might become bigger, We often think of people lowly rather than with value and worth. And Jesus said very clearly, out of the heart the mouth speaks, right? So the things that are coming out of our mouth are are just simply giant arrows pointing into our hearts saying, this is what I am filled with. This is what my heart is overflowing with. All sorts of vileness, all sorts of impurity, all sorts of rashness. And these things go so closely together with the one Above with the sexual immorality thing because we are often prone to speak of and to think of things that are degrading to other humans. Why? For our own personal enjoyment, for our own personal benefit, for our own personal entertainment. And it's absolutely opposite of what Jesus did in his life and how God has built us. And listen, I, like, I, I got, like most of you, I got my sex ed and a lot of my vocabulary from junior high, right? Like, I get it right here with you, right? Like, I was trained in a hockey locker room. Pretty bad place, right? That's where a lot of my vocabulary comes from. That's where a lot of my view, my broken and and messed up view of other human beings comes from, right? We were trained in an era, not just a decade, but an, an age bracket. We were trained during a time when everybody was foolish and not knowing anything. And that's where we were gaining wisdom, right? That's where we were being educated. And so our hearts have been perverted in so many of these ways. And we need this awareness, the fact that I'm not I'm not other than in this situation. I'm like those around me. I struggle with these realities. We need to recognize that we're on level plane in so many of these ways. So Paul talks about sexual morality, and he also talks about uncleanness, and finally covetousness, which also can say greed, right? And this simply is the misuse of possessions or resources for selfish gain, right? So again, it's taking what should be for others and it's making it for me. It's, it's, it's taking those gifts that I hope would be in another person's lives and saying, I want them in my life. And often this covetousness or greed, it points us in a direction of pacifying comfort or, 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 or a disproportionate longing for things that would, would satisfy desires within us, Right? We deeply want things that are not ours. There's something in us that says, what I have is not enough. What they have must be enough. Therefore, I need what they have. And covetousness and greed leads to all sorts of uh, misbehaviors, right? We pursue these things and we do anything because of the ends to which we're trying to receive, to achieve. The comforts that we're trying to attain for ourselves, leading to all sorts of wayward behaviors and selfish pursuits. 
What's important to see in this just brief but potent verse is that every single one of these things is idolatry, right? That all of these things, the sexual immorality, the impurity, and the covetousness, they are, they are simply fruits of a deeper root, and that deep root is the root of idolatry. Paul says they're all idolatrous. Right? Because here's what we're really tempted toward. Sexually, this is what we're tempted toward. Right? I know this. I feel this myself. You know this. It's this. We think, deep inside of us, we think there's got to be something out there that can bring me lasting pleasure, unbroken connection, and ultimate satisfaction. What I have right now isn't doing that, but there's got to be something out there that does that. Right? So whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're tempted towards same-sex or heterosexual or whatever temptations are in your life, the temptation is something out there has got to be enough. That's the sexual temptation, and that's what pushes us towards sexual immorality. Certainly what God gave me isn't going to be the thing that satisfies me. I'm going to have to go get it myself. And so I'll bend and I'll twist and I'll do whatever kind of brokenness so that I can ultimately achieve this lasting, unbroken satisfaction. That's what we want. And mentally, right, with our brains, with our minds, we do the same thing. It's a daily struggle. We think there has to be something out there that can fill my life so as to dull the ache of boredom or to pacify this restlessness in my mind, or to relieve the burden of unrelenting stress. And so our mind goes to all sorts of places because we're seeking some kind of relief, some kind of rest, some kind of escape. Whether that's a sexual way, or whether that's just a daydream way, or whether that's with, with things that, that uh, bring us escapism so we can get out of the pressure of this world, our minds are prone to go to places that would get us some sort of rest. We think in ourselves something out there has to satisfy. Right? And the same thing is true of our possessions. And this is abundantly difficult for us in a world that is so full of stuff. <laughs> we think there has to be something out there. A gadget or a belonging or whatever that can keep my fascinations fixed. There's got to be something out there that can fill my imagination and exceed all of my expectations. Something that can quench this thirst to have and hold the greatest thing that exists. There's got to be something like that out there. I know it. I can feel it in me. I just haven't found it yet because I haven't spent the right amount of money or I haven't bought it at the right place. There's got to be something out there. All of these things are saying the exact same thing. Something has to satisfy. Something has to be big enough. Something has to captivate me. Something must be that grand. And this is why it's idolatry. Because the only thing that can satisfy the only thing that's grand enough, the only thing that can capture the imagination and satisfy the soul and fill the depths of longing is the one I was made for, and that's God himself. Jesus alone can captivate me. That the eternal became a man to show me God's glory is a thought 
that can have no end. It is magnificent. And when I dwell on it and the richness of it and the spectacular nature that God would give himself for me, my mind is filled. My mind is filled. When I recognize that Jesus satisfies, I do not look for satisfaction in other things. And so listen, when we talk about these things and and we have to get this right when we talk to others, especially people who do not know Jesus. Because the message here from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is not, these things are bad, just simply stop. The message from Paul is there is something so glorious, something so spectacular, something so pure and so right and so true and so bright that when it's in your life and you're grabbing a hold of it, it pushes out the vile and the disgusting and the perverted and the dirty and the waste. It it pushes it out because of how full and glorious and beautiful it is. Don't just not do stuff. Right? Don't just stop doing activities. No, 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 no. Start something more glorious. Start thinking on. Start dwelling on. Start pursuing. Start responding to his pursuit. Start filling your life with a greater affection. That greater affection is Jesus. And it's the only way to push out these lesser affections. The only way. Right? Religion would tell you just try really hard and push out the affections. And when you're alert enough and you're thinking hard enough, you'll be able to do it. Right? The gospel says you don't have the power to push out an affection. But Christ can replace every affection. Because he's the greater affection. The greater good and the greater glory. And I think what's striking about this list is that in verse 6, Paul says judgment comes on us because of these things, right? The judgment of God is coming because of these things. Now, don't think there the judgment is coming on others because of these things. You've got to own it. God is judging these things in me. And he's wanting to see the idolatry repented of in me. So what things is he talking about? I mean, yes, the sexual immorality, but greed. In your filthy talk, you meaning me, right? Obscenity, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about coveting. So we dare not elevate one over another. And that's kind of the other shocking thing about this list is like there's probably something on this list that you put in another category. Am I right? Like that category. The judgment of God's coming because of that stuff. And then you're like, ah, greed's over here. Because that's pretty cool. (laughs) That new thing, right? Ah, my language. I don't really have to pay attention to how I talk about other people. It's that stuff that's the bad stuff, right? Now this verse equalizes these things and shows us 
there's severity in regards to them all. So moving on in verses 7 through 18, Paul then lays out for us a comparison of light versus darkness. He's saying those things that are in the world that, that are so easy and so encouraged and cheered on, those things ought not be amongst us as saints because we are new now. We are children of light. He says, take no part in verse 11 in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Right? For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's important to see that Paul is concerned here with the, with the, the actions of the church. Right? He's saying, let light shine in here. Let these things be exposed by light. So that they might be brought to light so that we might own them and so that we might repent of them so that we might be a part of God's work of sanctification in one another's lives to expel these things from among us right Paul calls us in one another's lives in the gospel community to be a part of the light that shines on one another some of your weaknesses aren't so glaring until you get into a room with particular people am I right some of your propensities aren't so strong-seeming until you're in a room with others who don't have those propensities. Like, we start to run into one another, and we start to realize, oh my gosh, I'm quick with my tongue, and that is not okay. <laughs> right? Because I'm starting to see, I'm taking people's heads off in this community, and that's not, that's not God, right? Like, the light is here, and it's exposing the darkness in us. And so, therefore, do not walk in the dark, but walk in the light. And this is just a real strong call to wake up, right? This is Paul just saying, guys, you've got to pay attention. You've got to be awake. You've got to be aware. Look closely on your own lives. Live not as unwise, but as wise. Live not as foolish, but seek to understand the will of God. Do not pursue drunkenness with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Right? So then this, I mean, this intensifies things for us. Right? Paul is seemingly talking about behaviors that are out there, but then he calls us to look at what is in us and realize, oh my goodness, we're prone to these things as well. And when we look at these lists, this is one of the, the most important aspects of the law in the Bible. When we look at the lists, how are we doing? Right? Like, how are we doing? Not even a hint of sexual immorality or covetousness or filthiness. Not even a hint. How are we doing? Right? Imitate God and walk in love like Jesus. How are we doing? Be wise. Don't waste time. Understand God's will and don't be drunk. How are we doing? Right? We're failing. We're failing. And that's why we need to back up to verse 2. 
where Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. And what did he do? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant, fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. When we're failing, our only hope is Christ. And when is it that we're failing? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and all day Sunday. Our only hope is Christ. Jesus was the fragrant offering and the sacrifice to God. What is a fragrant offering? Well, in all of the Old Testament, you see that offerings were spotless and pure and innocent. Right? It was the blameless sheep from among the flock. Right? It was the thing that had not been broken. No deformity in it. Purity. That was the fragrant offering. That's who Jesus is. This speaks of the righteousness of Christ for you. Because he came without a hint of sexual immorality. Without one word of filthiness. Without a glimpse towards the belongings of others with covetousness. Because Jesus lived like that, he liberates us from our guilt. He has become what we could not be before God, and that is perfect, righteous. And a sacrifice to God. This is a wrath-absorbing, sinner-replacing, sin-removing sacrifice. That that wrath that is coming on the world because of these things, when you're in Christ, where did that wrath go? It went on Jesus. You should sense that you're deserving of wrath. But you should deeply trust that there's no more wrath left for you. Because it was all put on Jesus. What a gift. He replaced me on the cross that I should have hung on. And instead spoke a word of truth about me. That I would be with him in paradise. A deserving sinner, worthy of all of the punishment, but he took it all for me. And he removed that sin. Now we are enabled then to walk in the light, to live, not to earn, but out of what Christ has earned, to live a whole new life with a whole new power and whole new motivations, right? Seeking to live not in the selfishness of immorality, not in the selfishness of uncleanness, not in the selfishness of covetousness, but in the others-ness of preferring one over myself. The others-ness of living into the life that God lived for me. 
right? And Paul kind of elaborates on this at the end of our passage. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we see the fragrant offering, when we believe in the sacrifice before God, the Spirit is given to fill us with a whole new course of life. Suddenly, our desire is for these things that build up and that honor God, and also our desire is to run and flee from the acts and the deeds of darkness. To be under the sway of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, means to use our mouths for different things than we were prone to use our mouths for before. It means to use our bodies for different things than we were tempted to use them for before. It means to use our energy and our efforts and our minds for different things than we were tempted to do before. Suddenly, in Galatians 5, we have a whole new life being lived out through us. It's called fruit. (laughs) Fruit of the Spirit, Paul calls it. It's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and it's goodness and it's faithfulness and it's gentleness and it's self-control. And there's no law against this. There's no law that would restrict these things. There's no law that would hold us back from joy and peace and patience and kindness. There's no law that would refrain us from faithfulness and gentleness. And so being marked or filled by the Spirit leads us into a glorious life of living into ordinary, regular things in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a power that comes to us not from ourselves, but from God, and it's a glorious reality. And the works of the Spirit are in in contradiction to the works of the flesh. And so as we seek obedience to Jesus and as we want to live into these implications, we must lead with belief. We start there. That I belong to God. Because of Jesus' work for me, I am no longer what I once was. That I am not under wrath. That I am not in darkness. But I am a son. I am a daughter. I live in light. And I am filled with the Spirit. And as we dwell on these truths, as we believe in these realities, the Spirit's life begins to bubble up out of us. Obedience is absolutely intentional, and sometimes God's just simply miraculously producing it in us. And it's slow, and sometimes seems tedious, and sometimes we feel like, gosh, how can I get over the hump in this one area? And all the while, we need to dwell on the fact that we are no longer under wrath. That all of my disobedience is immediately ready for God to forgive. That I can quickly be reconciled to God because of the work of Jesus if I just simply repent and believe. And so we pursue a life not lived in the flesh according to the ways of the world, but rather a life lived in obedience to God by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. May we repent of our idolatry. 
by the powerful, convicting work of the Holy Spirit, might we be awakened to the fact that we are pursuing empty things, that we might give them up and be cherished by God as we cherish Christ, as the ultimate satisfaction, as the deepest fulfillment, as the most glorious obsession, as the one who fills our mind and our hearts and our mouths with things that are glorious and good. May you sense that you were really made to enjoy God. That God really made you in his image so that you might find satisfaction in him. That is the key to all fruitfulness. And may we worship Jesus in the beauty of his holiness, knowing that he alone can satisfy our souls and lead us into walking as children of light. Amen. Let's pray. We need you, God. We, we know full well how powerful temptation is. And God, we know full well that the world encourages us just to give in. Even to own temptation as though it's good. Lord, today we reject those lies. We know that the key to light is not in ourselves, but it's in you. We know that righteousness was attained by Jesus and is given to us as a gift as he took on our sin and absorbed the wrath of God so that we might be children of light. But God, we have to be honest. Today, even, we've known the pull of temptation. We've known the pull of escapism. We've known the pull of covet, covetousness and greed. We've known the pull of being satisfied in something else other than what we have, other than what you've given, other than what you've made and chosen. God, it's, it's everywhere. We pray by your spirit, you would strengthen us, that you would move us toward repentance, that you would move us toward the enjoyment of Jesus, and that you would fill us and captivate us with a greater love with a greater desire, with a greater fulfillment, and that is Christ and Christ alone. Jesus, do this in your church for your glory and for our good, that the world might look in and recognize where life is. It's in Jesus. That you might rescue and redeem and be glorified in us and through us in this city and beyond. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please know repentance is a gift. God calls us into life when he points these things out. It's truth married with love. He puts them together. He wants us to know our state that he might call us into wholeness and heal our hearts. Amen. Jesus, would you heal us today?